This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. My name's Laura Suter and joining me this week is Dan Coatesworth. Hi there. And we've got two special guests on the show this week to talk about a couple of areas closely followed by investors. Rosanna Bacheri from Fidelity will be talking about where she's finding value in the US market. I'll also be chatting to Steve Reeford from Lazard about why people are right to be cynical about most thematic funds. And later in the show, I'll run through the new childcare scheme and also explain why foreign investors now account for a greater percentage of UK share ownership. Now, we've got some important information for pensioners on low income as they might be able to get an extra £300. But first up, let's take a look at what's been happening on the markets over the past week. So, Dan, let's kick off with some of the big news on the price of gold. What's been happening? Yeah, so gold hit a new record high of um, $2,135 per ounce. So that came just after, uh, unfortunately, another weekend of violence in the Middle East. And I think what happens is people get, con- get concerned about sort of geopolitical um, sort of turbulence and gold's got this reputation for being a safe haven asset. Um, so it, it, it's, it's kind of understandable why investors sort of piled into gold. We've also had sort of a weak dollar, and that makes it cheaper for, for people who aren't in the US, um, i.e. Sort of foreign investors, to, to be buying commodities. Um, but there's also, you know, there's also this theory as well that if you get gold making the headlines on the news, as we had at the start of the week, um, you might then get more interest from the public. They will put money into tracker funds that hold gold as um, their underlying assets. And of course, you know, the more these ETFs are buying gold, the more that drives the price up. But actually, what we've happened is um, sort of a, a counter force as well. Lots of investors who might already be holding gold see the price has been surging and then they've used the events to take profit. So actually what we've happened is you know, gold all over the headlines, new record high, but it hasn't gone up any further since Monday's peak. And I feel also a bit like we might have gone back in time because two years ago, everyone was getting excited about investing in Bitcoin and also GameStop shares. And both of those are back in the news again. I know. It, it really is sort of going back in back you know, back in a time machine two years ago when everyone was talking about it. So so Bitcoin, uh, you know, I am no expert in cryptocurrencies. Um, I appreciate they've got a fan base, um, but for me, I just look at them and think, okay, well, it's really hard to understand you know, what's going on here. The price is sort of driven purely by speculation. So Bitcoin is pushed back above $45,000 very briefly. Um, and we've seen a sort of a bit of a, a risk on mood with, with parts of the market. Investors sort of taking this, you know, the view that perhaps central banks have finished raising interest rates. Um, the next step might be interest rate cuts. So they, they're sort of fishing around in some of the sort of the, the high risk areas. There's also speculation that um, we might get US regulatory approval for spot Bitcoin sort of tracker funds. And that could drive a wave of sort of crypto fund products that are being backed by sort of mainstream asset managers. But I, I, I'll, leave, I'll leave the Bitcoin speculation to someone who's a bit more um, sort of plugged into this area. Um, but GameStop, you mentioned as well. Of course, you go back a couple of years, we had the meme stock um, trend, everyone piling into sort of certain stocks. GameStop shares went absolutely ballistic. But of course, you know, we've just had this, the latest results and 
to me, it's not really a surprise. Falling sales, another quarter of losses. Management actually refused to hold a conference call yet again to discuss the results. Um, you know, to, to me, it's like, what, what, you know, what is going on with this business? What, why, why are people still interested in, in holding these shares when they've basically gone through a huge spike, they, the bubble has burst, um, and, and really, it's just got so many problems. You know, intense competition from people like Amazon and eBay, far too many stores, it needs to slim down. Um, and I just think that you know, the GameStop brand has become a, a bit of a, a bit of a joke, really. People looking at it and thinking, um, "Oh, I associate that with that sort of meme stock bubble." We've even have a Hollywood film about it all as well. So, um, you know, a business that wants to be taken seriously, surely the first thing they need to do is actually you know, have the decency to to have a chat with their investors with a conference call with analysts and stuff to explain what's going on. But suffice to say, these results that just came out they didn't make the share price go any higher. In fact, the share price fell on it. Now, let's bring on our first guest for this week's podcast. So Rosanna Bocheri is Portfolio Manager on the Fidelity American Special Situations Fund. So her job is to look for value opportunities in the US and then invest in stocks when the market is underestimating their true worth. So Dan recently caught up with her at the AJ Bell Investable Conference to talk about the US market. So let's hear what she had to say about names such as FedEx and Google's parent company, Alphabet. So Rosanna, as a value-focused fund manager, do you think there's still plenty of value opportunities available in the US market now? Because a lot of people do say that US stocks are expensive in general. Uh, yes, so there are plenty actually of, uh, of value opportunity right now in the US market because uh, people just look at the sort of index where we know that there are the big tech that have, uh, have driven really the... Uh, the performance uh, this year after the correction last year. But if you look under the bonnet, and for example, you look at the valuation of the US market uh, of, um, of the big, uh, or the sort of headline multiple is uh, 18 times uh, um, price earnings. That is most of what, uh, what people sort of uh, refer to in terms of uh, the valuation of the US stock market. If you look at a big tech, then we are above almost 25, 27 times. But the rest of the market, apart of the Magnificent Seven, we are less than 14 times, which, by the way, is below the average of what the US market in general has traded. So yes, there are plenty of uh, of, uh, of opportunity uh, as, uh, as, value, uh, as value investor. The other thing that I would say is that uh, all the, um, the interest rate cycle and a bit like the consequence of the COVID and all the problem of the supply chain have driven a lot of uh, need of uh, restructuring and uh, reorganization. And that's where we find sometimes a very interesting opportunity because the market normally don't like when there are trouble ahead in terms of a reorganization. So your portfolio includes FedEx. Now, that company had a profit warning last year about weakening business conditions. This year, it's been slashing costs to protect profits as demand wanes. Why do you think that stock is still worth a look? We did so much work before uh, June last, uh, last year, and we decided uh, to wait until uh, the Capital Markets Day because we thought, uh, okay, we've done our analysis. We want to really the management uh, to set uh, the fine line in terms of uh, what are the expectations. And so we started investing that, and six, not even 60 days after, they came out with a huge profit warning. So it was not, it was not a fun, but... Nothing changed the, the fundamental analysis that, uh, that we have done. In reality, now, exposed, 
the, the new CEO was actually earlier than other uh, CEO of other transport uh, company to sort of uh, highlight the fact that we were going through a cyclical, a cyclical downturn, above all in light of, uh, of the comparison uh, coming out of, uh, out of COVID. But yes, there is a still a huge amount of, uh, of value because uh, like you pointed out, you know, a profit warning after Capital Markets Day, you don't score well in terms of, uh, shall I trust this kind of management? Now, it's a new management that is put in place. We have a change in CFO, but the plan that they put in place makes sense. Why? If you look at the, at the, at the um, fleet of aircraft, the company has gone through a huge refresh of, uh, of the fleet. So now, compared to UPS and other, and other companies across the world, they have the youngest fleet and some more, more efficient, and they've uh, tried to reduce the number of also of air, airplane. Yes, they have announced a huge cost cutting, but there is a need to cut cost because the, the organization unfortunately had balloon during the period of COVID because everybody was ordering online. And who was delivering? By Amazon, FedEx, UPS. So there, there were a lot of cost building in the company that now they're trying to reset, uh, reset back. And plus there is this huge opportunity of putting together the express and the ground business. You don't need two FedEx truck, one, one express and one ground running around the same neighborhood. There are a lot of cost saving. So the company, when you look at the assets, it, it, for us is undervalued compared to the franchise value of the asset and actually also the physical asset that they own because this is a big, big, I call it infrastructure, uh, infrastructure asset that you have. And second, the market is underestimating the cash earnings power because the profitability and return on investment are still much below the one of UPS that was always considered the gold standard in the industry. And there is this potential of catching up. Now, you've got a stake in Google's parent company, Alphabet. What is it about that stock that you like? If you, if you look at, it, at the various, uh, various businesses of, of Google, you have search. The market has been really, really upset on the possibility of Microsoft now with OpenAI and ChatGBT sort of disrupting the monopoly, the quasi-monopoly of, of, of Google in, in search. In reality, you look at the market share, it has not moved at all. Google, the search engine at Google is such a fantastic engine that even if you're told that you should use something else, by default you go and use, and use, and use Google. Look at all these um, um, question about uh, the AI, uh, this focus on the right asset for AI is Microsoft. Actually, I would say the right asset on AI is, is Google. Google bought in um, uh, 2014 for less than 600 million DeepMind, a UK-based company. It was the leader and really very early in artificial intelligence. Google has been working with artificial intelligence since then. Why do you think the search engine at Google is the best in the market? Because they've, they've been using it. So we think that in the search engine, there is a franchise value that the market is underestimating. And effectively, what we are hearing also out of the DOJ investigation, what's going on in the tribunal, that even if they are asked to not paying any more this billion to Apple to be a sort of default search engine on, on your iPhone, people will go and download Google Chrome because it's the best search engine. And you know what, in a certain way, 
they're going to save all this billion and they're going to come down with a 90% margin to the bottom line. And the last two buckets of Google that excite us is the cloud and YouTube. Cloud, they're losing money. They change a little bit the accounting and it looks like they're almost break even, but in reality, they are not there. And there is the place for a third good competitor to AWS and Microsoft Azure. And Google Cloud has the capacity to go there. So you have a business where they've been investing that has been losing money that can become a business at least at 10, 15% profitability. And then you have YouTube, probably the most undervalued content asset that exists on the market. They bought um, YouTube in 2006 for 1.6 billion. Last year, revenue at YouTube were 30 billion. This is a fantastic asset where they've only just started to monetize via ad advertising. Warren Buffett's investment vehicle, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, it's another stock in your portfolio. So I guess he's, he's the world's most famous living investor, that, um, you know, known for being you know, making some brilliant calls. I, I guess having that in a, in a sort of a, a value or a special situations fund might, might surprise a lot of people. Um, you know, what is it that you, you see the opportunity there? Is it, is it because um, you know, the whole business is unvalued or do you think actually the businesses that Berkshire Hathaway owns, a lot more could be done with them? Both, actually. And uh, yes, maybe it doesn't fit the sort of uh, definition of special seats that you first have in mind. But for us, it's one of these quality assets that is, uh, is uh, really, really, really undervalued. And it's trading below what we think is the true asset value of, uh, of, of the asset. What you're buying with Berkshire Hathaway is 25% of Apple, 25% of other public company that give you, in a certain way, the exposure to the broad and the breadth of the manufacturing in the US, 16% of insurance, uh, some services and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and retail, other quoted company. And then an asset, two assets uh, that for us are, are, are really important. One is, uh, is, um, is Barlington, is, uh, is the, the railway that they own. Again, west of the Mississippi, that for us is a fantastic asset. We love railways. Uh, it's very simple to, to value in terms of a true, true um, hard asset, but there is a, this potential of more volume going through the rail than, than through track. And second is Berkshire Hathaway Energy, that nobody talks about it. But Berkshire Hathaway has been able to put together not only uh, a lot of uh, utilities, uh, well-run utilities uh, in very attractive states, but also one of the biggest assets uh, and investor in uh, renewable energy in, uh, in the US. So in the way actually also the company is structured because it's part of Berkshire Hathaway, they are probably the best position, not only in terms of the cost of funding, and I think in the next uh, uh, 12 to 18 months, we're going to really see the difference from the company that uh, have, um, have been around just because interest rates were low and actually companies that are able to keep on investing and fund themselves. But second, uh, because of the structure being part of Berkshire Hathaway, they can actually optimize also the use of all these uh, tax credits that are going uh, um, through the uh, Inflation Reduction Reduction Act. So it's not probably a special seat in terms of turnaround, but it's really by looking under the bonnet of the 
true asset that there are that there are inside that we think is underappreciated the value of Berkshire Hathaway. That was Rosanna Bacheri from Fidelity American Special Situations Fund. Let's turn to a few important personal finance stories. So I'll kick off with the government's announcement about the new childcare scheme. So these are the announcements that they made last year about extending the current free hours childcare scheme to people with younger children. So at the moment, the scheme is that from the age of three, um, a child is entitled to, every child is entitled to 15 free hours of childcare. And then for certain working parents within certain income parameters, um, they are entitled to 30 free hours of childcare. The government's plan was to extend this, and this is really um, aimed at encouraging more parents, and particularly women, back into work by offering subsidised childcare so that the cost of childcare isn't such a barrier to people returning to work. So from next April, um, parents will be uh, able to apply for 15 hours of free childcare for two-year-olds. And actually, that's when they're eligible to do so. But from the 2nd of January, parents can start applying for this. So if you know that your child is going to be two from April next year onwards, then you can apply for this scheme and you get 15 free hours at the moment. And then there's a gradual rollout throughout next year um, from September, increases slightly, and then from the following April, um, all parents with children nine months or older will be entitled to some free hours. So, you know, headline news, this is great news for parents. They're getting more help towards childcare costs. And we know, obviously, that that is a huge cost for lots of parents. Um, However, I think the 15 free hours as a headline is a bit misleading because it doesn't actually equate to that in reality. Firstly, you only get the hours for term time. Um, So you get it for 38 weeks of the year rather than 52 weeks of the year. Now, obviously, the majority of parents work 52 weeks of the year, plus, you know, they have their holiday entitlement, but um, 38 weeks of the year won't cover the childcare requirements for lots of parents. And at the same time, the government generally doesn't pay market rate for these hours. So it's paying less than the nursery would charge parents. And that means that nurseries then have to charge extra fees on top. So either for additional hours, for food, for nappies, sometimes some will have activity costs. So it means that if your child was in nursery for just 15 hours a week, it wouldn't be entirely free in most situations. So a great support to parents and a good reminder for those that will have eligible children from April that they can start applying from January next year, um, but approach your childcare provider to find out exactly how much it will save you um, because it's not likely to be quite what the headline says it is. Should we turn our attention to people in retirement? Because there's a bit of good news for for pensioners on low income, but there is a caveat. You've got to act quickly because there's a a deadline to get some extra money. It's fast approaching. Now, I must say, we normally talk about pensions and saying if there's any sort of people telling you to do something very quickly, it could potentially be a scam. This is not the case here. This is a government scheme um, designed to help people with sort of the daily living costs. Um, it's aimed at people over state pension age and, and say on, on a low income. So um, if you apply by the 10th of December, you could potentially get uh, an extra £300 cost of living payment. 
Now, nearly 1.4 million pensioners currently receive pension credit, but um, the government's saying that there's other people that could potentially be sitting on the sidelines who are missing out. So um, I appreciate by the time you're listening to podcasts, you, you literally might be on the verge of when this deadline comes up. But best thing is to do is to go on to um, the gov.uk uh, website, look for pension credit, and there's information there how to claim. Um, like I say, you do the deadline is the 10th of December, so... Um, uh, you know, if you're lucky, um, get in there quick. Otherwise, you might have unfortunately missed that um, sort of opportunity to get a little bit of extra money. Now, we also had some really interesting figures out a few days ago on the percentage of foreign investors who own UK shares. So, Dan, have a guess at the number. Oh, I, I, I knew you were going to do this. And I, <laughs> and, I, and I didn't sneakily go and have a look. So, um Ownership shares, uh, I don't know, 40%? So it's actually higher than that. Overseas investors hold a record high of 57.7%, so we'll call it 58% between friends, of the UK stock market. So that means of all the UK shares that are available to buy out there, 58% of them are held by overseas investors. Um, And actually, the proportion held by UK individuals has dropped again, and it's dropped to just below 11%. Um, But perhaps the biggest drop off is the proportion held by pension and insurance companies. So back in 1997, they held, they owned about 46% of all UK shares out there. Do you want to guess what it is today? Um, slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> Much lower. So they now own only 4% wow. of UK shares. So it's a huge drop. Um, and there's a few things at play here. So obviously, we have a much more global view of investing than we would have had, you know, decades and decades ago. And so when we think about the size of some of those US mutual funds or sovereign wealth funds, um, they are much larger than the kind of individual holdings among DIY investors out there in the UK. So easy to see how they would end up dwarfing, you know, the holdings that UK individuals have. Um, And also, if we think about kind of index trackers, so if we think about the MSCI World Index, which is usually used as the kind of barometer of global markets, the UK makes up 4% of that. So it's not a huge amount, but it does mean that for all of those global trackers out there, they'll be buying up UK shares. And at the same time, UK investors have taken a much more global view recently. Um, They're buying much more global funds or investing in the US or or overseas. And actually, um, based on data from the Investment Association, uh, since 2016, £44 billion has been sold out of UK equity funds by by UK investors. So UK is just not very in favour with its own um, investors. And then the other really big factor, so behind that um, proportion, that huge drop in the, the holdings among pension insurance companies, is their kind of shift towards... Um, bonds on away from equities after new rules were introduced on defined benefit schemes about 20 years ago. So that means that they've really increasingly shifted towards bonds and away from equity holdings. And and that's led to that huge drop there. Obviously, the government at the moment is on a big campaign to kind of 
boosts the appeal of UK shares, try to get more people investing back in UK shares. We had that announcement in the autumn statement that they were hoping to sell NatWest shares to individual investors. So this is the stake in NatWest that the government still owns. It wants to kind of launch a invest in the UK type campaign and, and get um, individual DIY investors excited about opening owning UK bank shares. Um, we'll have to see how that goes. But at the moment, not very in favour is what these data tells us. I, it's an interesting situation. And we've got, um, obviously, everyone knows that the, the UK stock market relative to other parts of the world is really cheap. So um, we, whilst, you know, general investors are just sort of sitting there and not really sort of taking advantage of these opportunities, um, there are still people, particularly in the private equity space, who, who are sort of basically saying, well, if the average, average, the average investor is not re- recognised this value, we'll come along and buy these companies because we can see that they're they're a lot cheaper than they really should be. So we've just had yet another week of you know more takeovers. So the, the size of the UK stock market is sort of shrinking because it, the, the pot is not being replenished by sort of these new IPOs when when the companies join the stock market for the first time. So we've seen the bowling company. 10 entertainments um, receiving a takeover. And just as we're recording this, um, smart metering systems um, is just had a, you know, and also had a takeover offer. TUI, the holiday company, um, says it might leave the London Stock Exchange, um, shift its main listing to Germany, um, and so it can qualify for sort of one, sort of one of the main indices there. And, and I guess the TUI thing makes sense. I mean, most of its share trading already happens in Germany, not the UK. Um, the government, Sort of, uh, German government has already sort of helped been bailing it out during the COVID crisis. It reports all its earnings in euros. It kind of just that more makes sense. But t- to me, when you're constantly seeing these little, little bits of the market being chipped away because of takeovers, and it's it's as I I keep saying the same thing on the podcast, but I just can't overemphasize it. Um, if you're holding those shares, well, that's fine. You, you you get a little uplift. Um, you know, could be 20, 30, 40 percent premium. But just think about if you'd held those shares for long term in your portfolio and they kept growing. So really, you're, 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 you, you might actually lose out long term by not having sort of those interesting companies in your portfolio. But we, we, Lion Trust, Anthony Cross, is going to be on the show next week to talk about this situation. So, so make sure you tune into next week's podcast because um, that, that's a really interesting stuff he says. Um, yeah, and you know, I, had, I had a really good time talking to him the other day about it. And we also had, if you're kind of interested in, in this topic, then we um, a couple of months ago, we had someone on talking about the changes to UK listing rules, which sounds, you know, a bit dry, but actually, it's part of the government's plan to kind of boost the attractiveness of the UK and of London listing um, in comparison to global peers. So that's also quite interesting. But for now, it's time for our final guest on the podcast. So Steve Reeford is a portfolio manager on Lazard's global thematic equity team. So tapping into big themes is a popular approach for many investors, but many people are getting involved too late, as Steve explains in the podcast interview. He also talks about a shifting in the investment landscape and how that's impacting his portfolio decisions. So let's hear what he had to say. 
So, Steve, it feels like we're in a sort of a new structural regime. All the, the things that people have been looking at um, the last sort of, say, five, ten years, the idea of like rapid growth, low interest rate world. Um, it, it just feels like we're, we're, we're now thinking we need to think differently about what's going to be happening and what the backdrop's going to be like. Could you talk about what the companies have been telling you um, and you know, how you might be positioning your portfolio with this sort of new structural regime uh, looking forwards? I think it's a great first question, Dan, and a, and a good place to begin because the companies are also uh, of the belief that we're in a new regime, and, and just to sort of give some context for that, when we think about the last 10 or 15 years, particularly since the financial crisis, the market, with hindsight, has been dominated by two major developments. The first of those were the emergence of these U.S. tech titans, the very, very profitable, very, very powerful businesses that resulted from the aggregation of various technologies, so they, they were very profitable. But in addition to that, we had a zero interest rate environment that enabled those companies to achieve very high price earnings ratios as well, very high valuations. And these were the two things that we needed to know. Now, both of those conditions, I think, are unlikely to be the main things we need to be aware of in the next decade. Uh, when we talk to companies, the sorts of things that we hear are that they, um, obviously in terms of technology, are still looking at, at technological investment, but it's AI and, and sort of three, uh, 5G and, sen and uh, sensors and digitization, these other technologies that are becoming more important. Um, they're, they're very, very focused on what's going on in, in the geopolitical world with three now major conflicts, potentially you've got the, the, sort of the Cold War between US and China, and then developments in the Middle East and in Ukraine, of course, as well. So that's meaning that they have to think very, very hard about, for example, where they um, place their supply chains. I think it's notable on that one, by the way, that um, you know, you've seen sort of many, many companies reinvesting. We can get onto that in a moment. World of sustainability, of course, is going through a major shift because most of those investments were predicated on a zero interest rate world and interest rates are now much higher. So that increased cost of capital means that the industry is having to transition financially as well as in terms of decarbonization. And then last, but definitely not least, I just don't think we can assume anymore that we're in an environment where inflation returns to very, very low levels. I think it's quite likely that it will come back again. So a very, very different outlook, a different regime, and one that asset allocators, investors, and fund managers need to react to. You're part of the Lazard Global Thematic Fund. So you're, you're looking for sort of long-term themes uh, to play uh, and the companies in which best position to take advantage of these opportunities. Could you, could you talk through a couple of these themes that you're looking at at the moment? So in identifying our themes, we're looking for long-term structural ideas that will fit within that new regime that we just discussed. Uh, to pull out a couple of examples here, when we're thinking about reshoring and supply chains, the US has just imported more from Mexico than China for the first time in 20 years. This is a very real shift, and companies are having to respond, and, and that means that they're placing more and more capex in different places, that they're having to deal with sustainability challenges, and sustainability is getting more expensive. They're having to respond to labor inflation, which implies you know, swapping labor for capital. And the thing that all of these have in common is that they imply higher levels, much higher levels of capital expenditure over the next 10 or 15 years than we've seen historically. So it makes sense to us to invest in companies that are on the recipient end of that spending, so capital goods companies, automation companies, and so on, and we think the prospects for those companies are incredibly strong in this new regime. I suppose another example here, that the hot topic for 2023 was AI. Uh, we do think that there are very, very strong uh, 
you know, opportunities within that space, but we need to look beyond the obvious. So, you know, beyond the sort of obvious chip names, for example, who've, who've done very, very well in 2023. And we're increasingly interested in, in data companies. So companies that, for example, run legal or medical or consumer databases, because they own this proprietary data that's incredibly valuable as an input to AI algorithms. They've been dealing with a lot of, sort of regulatory and privacy issues around data for many, many years. That represents competitive advantage. And overall, these data companies are the ones that we think are severely undervalued in the market today. You mentioned inflation at the start. Um, obviously, in the last few years, people have been looking for companies that might have pricing power, can, can pass on extra costs to the consumer. Now that the pace of inflation is slowing in parts of the world, how has that sort of impacted your sort of portfolio decisions? Are, are you switching into sort of different names um, or do you, it, it perhaps it's not sort of a, a major consideration for you at the moment? The kind of pattern of inflation that we see here is, is not so much that inflation is going to be permanently high, but that the average will be high because inflation will keep coming back, sort of an inflation zombie regime where you think it's dead and it comes back to bite you. Uh, we're in the downward curve of that today, but there's nothing to say that it won't come back again once policymakers sort of you know, ease off and, and sort of hit the brakes a little bit as well. So we'll see what happens there. Now, the impact for investors is really twofold. We need to be thinking about carefully about the types of companies that can prosper in an inflationary regime. Obviously, they need pricing power, but also there are other companies here that we think can do well. But for investors, the really big news is about valuation because what worked in the last decade, and this is particularly true of, of, of so-called thematic investors, is that they've ended up on the right-hand side of that growth Starbucks and the growthiest of growth companies that achieve some record valuations. We think we are most unlikely to go back to that type of environment again. And instead, it's what we would describe as sort of SCARP, structural change at a reasonable price, is that kind of hybrid approach that we deploy. And we think that we, we are well-placed for this kind of regime where inflation could easily come back to bite us. And just, just finally, um, you know, given that you're running a thematic fund, I, I, you know, the, I've heard several people in the past sort of uh, make this sort of suggestion that if, if you're trying to invest in a hot theme, surely all the easy money's already been made. If that, if it's really obvious that the theme has got a, a sort of opportunities to grow earnings um, for businesses in the future, how, what, what's your sort of response to that sort of, um, su sort of cynical suggestion about how thematic investing works? Investors are right to be highly cynical about the vast majority of thematic investments. And I can come up with at least two or three reasons why. And the first of those is that by the time that investors hear about, for example, a single thematic idea, the chances are is that the idea is, as you say, quite late in the day, fully discounted. That's a recipe for disaster. The second thing is that a lot of thematic uh, offerings out there, I think, don't do what they say on the tin. So they, they sort of put a great narrative over it that seems logical and inevitable. But when you scratch the surface and you look at the underlying investments, they actually have very little to do with what you've been buying. And then the final part, of course, is that nobody tells you when to sell. So um, you know the, the, the agency conflicts here of a, of, a, of a portfolio management team saying that this investment's going to go on forever. It's, it's just not going to happen. But you know they're conflicted because they want to continue to collect the fee. So you know, there's all sorts of things, I think, that, that genuinely warrant a lot of skepticism and a lot of cynicism about thematic investing. That's why you know, the way that we approach it, which is to take on that role of identifying themes early, selling them ourselves, a multi-theme approach aligns us much more with a client 
And, um, and of course, most of all, not forgetting the fundamental investment principles of research and valuation, um, because combined with that structural approach, you do have some very, very strong investment outcomes. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Terrific. Thanks very much, Dan. That was Steve Refford from Lazard Global Thematic Fund. Now, that's all we've got time for this week. Don't miss next week's show where we'll be bringing on uh, Anthony Cross from Lion Trust to talk about the state of the UK stock market. We've also got a chat from Guinness Asset Management talking about the energy sector. Until then, thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.